From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Leg Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about the House of History, a project dedicated to sharing local Black LGBTQ history. We'll examine some artifacts left over from Milwaukee's past mental health care facilities. The dolphin urn is actually quite famous. It's been cataloged by the Smithsonian American Arts Museum's Inventories of American Paintings and Sculpture database, and yet it's just sitting out in the open for anybody to be able to see. Plus, learn about the Black Cross nurses and the work that they have done. They saw it as being part of the Marcus Garvey movement, number one, and number two, helping to solve the problems of our people, and that being health issues. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. We'll start with Janice Toy. She plays a big role in Milwaukee's LGBTQ history. She's one of Milwaukee's most legendary entertainers and one of the founding members of SHEBA, or Sisters Helping Each Other Battle Adversity, a support group for Black women of trans experience. Toy is on a mission to make sure Milwaukee's Black LGBTQ history is preserved and shared through the House of History. The House of History is a project dedicated to collecting and sharing local Black LGBTQ history through interviews, as well as uncovering and sharing photographs and other artifacts that tell the stories of Black LGBTQ Milwaukeeans. Toy joins me now to explain how she wanted to go from being a part of local Black LGBTQ history to preserving it. Well, with the House of History, you know, this gives me the opportunity to, I guess, document a lot of the girls who have passed, you know, I guess to document, you know, their life legacy, you know, because sometimes when people die, you know, we forget. And a lot of the younger transgender community, they don't know the struggles that a lot of the girls had to go through before them. You know, now there's a lot of programs, you know, that's targeted to kind of help transgender. But when I first came out, a lot of those programs weren't available, you know, so they don't know the struggles and the hard work that the older girls had to put in, you know, and a lot of the newer girls, you know, that's just coming out and don't even know that it was a girl who, um, you know, who the struggles that she went to to get, you know, it passed for us to get our name changed and, you know, to just to be able to live, you know, this lifestyle that people take, you know, advantage of, you know, so. Can you share how it was born? I understand you connected with Bryce Smith of the LGBTQ Milwaukee, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you share how you both came together to bring this idea about? Well, he was interviewing just some Sheba, you know, members. And it was just like a instant connection me and him had, you know, and then he just, you know, just introduced me to other different, you know, programs and stuff that he had. And, you know, ideas that, you know, he wanted to, you know, bring about. And I just jumped aboard and it was like an instant connection. Yeah, he was originally in touch with you to learn more about Sheba, which is Sisters Helping Each Other Battling Adversity and talking about the programs that exist today. Uh, You're one of the founding members of Sheba. I'd love to learn more about why and how you started this organization and, and what it looked like in its early days compared to now. 
Well, Sheba, it was a group because, I mean, I was just one of the first members that joined. But, I mean, it started off with sisters helping each other battle AIDS. But then a lot of girls kind of were, I guess they didn't like the title, you know, of AIDS being associated, you know, with being, you know, transgender or whatever. Because I guess a lot of people got a misunderstanding that everybody that was in the group or in order to be a part of the group, you had to be, you know, HIV positive, which wasn't the case. And so, you know, they wanted to take away that that negative title. So then it got changed to, you know, adversity or whatever. But, you know, we involved, you know, now it's kind of like, you know, they help with um, a lot of employment. Um, they do um, clothing drives. Um, they do more outings. They offer um, needle exchange. They offer programs to help girls get um, hormones, you know, because I guess in the earlier days, you know, a lot of those programs weren't available, you know, to us as transgender. You know, a lot of, you know, people, if you didn't have insurance or um, you just didn't have the money, you know, you were just buying it, you know, from off the street, you know, whatever, you know, so it's kind of like we... You know, offer a lot of different things to help girls, you know, to stay on the right path, you know, and, um, because a lot of times, you know, people think that Black trans women or trans, you know, people in general, you know, the only thing that we were eligible for was either sex work or doing drag shows. You know, we couldn't have like a, a regular job. We couldn't, you know, have the things that a normal person in society, you know, they felt like, you know, we weren't, you know, entitled to those things. You know, and now Sheba is, you know, we promote jobs and, and getting people, you know, into, you know, careers and different things like that. If you're comfortable, would you mind sharing about your own journey coming out and your relationship with your mother and how she influenced your outlook and activism and helping other people in the roles you play yourself? I had a very strong, you know, relationship with my mother. You know, my mother... Unfortunately, you know, I lost her a few years ago due to COVID. But, you know, she was a very strong person in my life. I mean, like I said, we were very, very close. You know, she didn't look at me, you know, differently or treated me any differently. You know, she always gave me the um, the motivation that I needed and pushed me, you know, to want different things in my life. And she always made me believe that I could do anything regardless of my sexuality or because I chose to be trans, you know, she always, you know, told me that, you know, I can always come to her and I could talk to her about anything. You know, I didn't have to feel embarrassed or, you know, and she opened her, you know, her home to any of, you know, all of my friends, like if people, you know, didn't have anything to eat, they were able to come to her house and sit down and get a meal you know, if they needed a place to stay, she opened up her house to them. You know, my mother was very loving, you know, and very supportive, you know, of my lifestyle. And I guess because of that, I was able to give back. And I guess I just felt, you know, like there was always something I wanted to do to help others. Because I had was fortunate enough to have someone in my life. You know, because a lot of times, you know, family members, they turn their back on you once they find out, you know, that you're trans or you're even living into a gay lifestyle. You know, they turn their back on you. And I had a strong support system. You know, my family was very supportive. 
And so I just wanted other girls to share in that, that, you know, they too could, you know, have someone in their corner to pick them up. You know, I wanted them to feel that family support, you know, that I felt coming up. The whole theme of support and sharing someone's legacy and sharing their actions to honor their memory, especially, that's a common theme for the House of History project. So what was your process for picking which individuals to interview? Well, I guess, you know, me being, I guess you would consider an elder in this community, um, you know, I know a lot of people. And then by me, I used to perform and I used to do shows and as well. So I know a lot of people, you know, in the community. And I've worked with, you know, a lot of individuals. And I've lost, you know, a lot of friends along the way. And it's kind of almost like when they die, their story died with them. And working with Bryce, this kind of gave me that opportunity to keep their memories alive. And that's kind of why I wanted to jump on this, you know, because, you know, a lot of them were close friends. You know, I, some of the people that, you know, died, um, you know, with the whole Dahmer incident, you know, I knew some of them as well. People forget about them. And then a lot of people don't understand, you know, the impact that these individuals made in my life and in other people's lives as well. You know, so given this opportunity, you know, it just helped me to, you know, I guess to just keep their memories alive. And then I, I guess what made me pick certain people that I worked with is because, you know, they lived in that era and some of them were elders as well. So I wanted their stories to be heard, you know, so, you know, it could be documented and shared, you know, with other people. What did you discover about yourself when you took on the role of interviewing people and these members of the Black LGBTQ community? Everyone has a story to tell. And sometimes, you know, because we had like a general questions, you know, that we kind of like asked everyone, but everyone had like a different answer. And some things you didn't even know about, I didn't even know about, you know, some of the individuals and I've been knowing some of them for years, you know, but when you start getting into asking certain questions, you just got, you know, all these different answers. And then it was opening up, you know, because, you know, it's like, a, it was more like a, a friendship type of thing. So they were comfortable with sharing these stories, something that, you know, they probably wouldn't have told anyone else, but because they felt comfortable with our friendship, you know, they opened up and they didn't have a problem with, you know, sharing these different things. And, some of these stories I was even blown away by. And along with the people you talk to, the sense of place and community also plays a big role for Milwaukee's queer community. And most people are familiar with Walker's Point being the area with most of the city's gay bars. But can you share the history of the gay bars on Milwaukee's north side and the role that they played in your life? A lot of the bars that I guess I went to on the north side um, when I first came out are no longer here. But when they were open, you know, it just gave me uh, a place of being able to be myself. I didn't have to hide who I was. I didn't have to pretend, you know, and put on a, a fake smile. You know, I could let my hair down. You know, I could just be myself. And it was a, a, a loving, you know, situation because it was like you were around like-minded people. 
you know, that didn't judge you or didn't look down on you because of something that you had on or because, you know, you were different. You know, it was just, I guess, just a, a loving, you know, situation, you know, to be a, around people, you know, that didn't judge you, you know, and you were able to have a good time. Throughout your memories or the interviews you've been conducting, can you share with us uh, a person that you interviewed whose stories are not just impactful, but a story that you think is is worth sharing right now before the website launches? Well, I guess the one story that kind of touched me a little more was the one with um, Ronnie Graves. You know, I've been knowing him for years, and he's been one of the facilitators at Diverse Resilient with the Sheba. You know, I guess, you know, hearing his struggle and, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, he went through in other states that he lived in and things, you know, with health issues and, you know, just a lot of things across the board that he was dealing with. It was just very heartwarming, you know, to know that throughout of everything that he went through, you know, he's still here and he made, you know, different sacrifices and a lot of things that he did, you know, help the community. And a lot of the programs that he started and, you know, was a part of are successful, you know, because of him. And so, you know, I was just glad that I was able to, you know, learn a lot of, you know, different things. I was just touched by, you know, his interview. And with you yourself learning new things with people you've known for years, collecting their histories, how do you hope the House of History Project will connect with and impact Black LGBTQ plus Milwaukeeans especially? Well, you know, I guess my goal is to get the word out, you know, that we're here. And a lot of the, the sacrifices that were made by some of the people who are no longer here, their legacy can live on, you know, because everyone in our family you know, has someone in the LGBT community, whether they want to admit it or not, you know, it's someone in somebody's family, you know, whether they're in the closet or they're not. And, you know, their stories, you know, need to be told. This was a way that, you know, it was it was a life-changing experience, you know, and it was a way to to make history and, you know, to keep history, you know, going. And I think that this website, you know, would give that. I get that opportunity, you know, to, to get that word out and get that connection, you know, that we need. Janice Toy is the mother of the House of History, a project dedicated to collecting and sharing local Black LGBTQ plus history. We spoke in October. Over the decades, many facilities have been built to address the physical and mental health needs of the community. And with those buildings and their histories come great artifacts to look back on. Jonathan Peel is the unofficial historian for the Behavioral Health Division. He joins me to share a few of his favorite pieces and places that you can still visit today. Obviously, before there can be artifacts, there needs to be a place to house them where they were built. So a lot of what's left today 
that you referenced in our last conversation is what is now County Grounds Park. What's left of that? That's correct. Uh, County Grounds Park is 112 acres, and it includes 60 acres of woods, and that contains some of the remnants that are still there today, notably of the landscaping. But this was patient-curated landscaping and other artifacts. So in ways, it's an outdoor museum that people can still visit today. Yeah, I love the fact that outdoors can be an artifact, too. Yes. Um, Within the grounds... There is one particular artifact we're going to talk about. It's a a dolphin urn. That is correct. Yeah, the dolphin urn is actually quite famous. It's, uh, It's been cataloged by the Smithsonian American Arts Museum's Inventories of American Paintings and Sculpture Database, and yet it's just sitting out in the open for anybody to be able to see. Um, This particular piece is actually being cared for by the Ronald McDonald House, and I appreciate their contribution to both giving it a location and keeping it safe here over 110 years. So this particular sculpture can be found just south of the park in the Ronald McDonald parking lot, that Ronald McDonald House being on Watertown Plank Road. And this is a six-foot-tall stone vase, uh, often referred to as a dolphin urn. So we can find records that in 1908, there was a patient admitted by the name of Vladimir Jonathan Kosarek. He uh, was going through mental health issues, um, but he also had a background as a stonecutter. And as part of his industrial therapy, he wanted to carve a large vase to help beautify the grounds. And so the, uh, uh, the administration of the hospital contacted his employer, which was a quarry, uh, and that employer provided an uncut uh, piece of Bedford stone, six feet tall, about three feet in each other direction. And he had carved then this beautiful six-foot vase in just a few months. He did it without a model. It included ornamental uh, dolphins, part of the vase being the urn. And then coming out of the mouth of each dolphin is a little frog. Coming out of the mouth of each frog is some garland. Each of the four sides of the vase, the garland represents a different season. And so you can go to that Ronald McDonald House parking lot, again, just a few hundred feet south of the park, and be able to look at that. There's still an inscription of 1908 on it. There's still an inscription um, uh, with V.J. Kasarik, uh, really the name initials of the artist who was a patient and was able to be there, be able to improve his mental health state, to be able to be released and leave something of beauty to really inspire other patients for more than 100 years. Really a a great thing to have something still physically there that we can visit. And uh, along those lines, there are remnants. It's not quite what it looked like before. But up next, we have the sunken garden. Yep. Uh, The uh, sunken gardens included a 1.5-acre lake, several waterfalls, beautiful walkways, a cement pergola, and then tiered gardens. And as part of industrial therapies, many of these features were created by patients, and certainly the, the gardens were curated by patients. What still remains today are portions of two waterfalls, uh, a little of the cement porches, and the tiered landscape. Over 50 years, uh, this area became really overgrown with invasive plants and buckthorn. And over the last two years, the Friends of County Grounds Park organization has been clearing that buckthorn and opening the land up. Uh, This effort has included uh, the contributions of dozens of local high school students helping to remove that buckthorn. And this past year, several students were inspired to plant wildflower seeds at that same location of the historic gardens. Despite the pandemic, they executed a bake sale at high school basketball games and raised enough funds to plant thousands of native wildflower uh, seeds 
since just this past spring. We expect those native wildflowers to start blooming this coming spring, changing the historic sunken gardens back to a current sunken gardens. Again, viewable by anyone who enjoys the park. Definitely. I also like the community coming back and beautifying it as well. Absolutely. It's been great. We've had hundreds of community volunteers doing everything from removing invasive weeds to the buckthorn removal. We even planted 140 trees uh, just this past fall. We had 75 volunteers come out in the wind and the rain in order to be able to extend the forest another two acres. So speaking of forests, there is a women's grove uh, that was once a recreational area for patients, right? That is correct. Um, Part of the improvements in mental health care over several uh, decades was simply separating men and women from each other in the care uh, of mental health issues. And so that included that the buildings had a men's wing and a women's wing. And this recreational area that included a forest had a men's grove and a women's grove. Um, Within the women's grove, there was a large natural ravine. And in the early 1900s, patients built two field stone staircases for accessing each part of the ravine. Uh, Down the middle of the ravine, there was a small uh, creek and footbridges. Today, um, the historic stairs still exist. While there has been a lot of decay, um, they've been sufficiently cleared for safe passage. It's really a hidden gem within the park. It still provides a sanctuary for visitors today, just as it did 100 years ago. In fact, the woods surrounding those stairs are called sanctuary woods. You mentioned there there was a separation of men and women for both treatment and recreation, uh, but there is one other artifact we're going to talk about today, and that's the patient picnic video. And this is about the 1940s and 50s that this was captured? Yep, that is correct. And so, as we mentioned before, while there was separation uh, under most circumstances, there were times and places where patients were encouraged to interact. Uh, and each year, there was an enormous all-patient picnic on the grounds. There has been some 16 million film that captured these picnics and provided a wonderful insight into how the patients enjoyed manicured grounds 80 years ago. The picnics had temporary tenting for dining areas, temporary grandstands for viewing the uh, festivities. On the perimeter were rows for carnival games like ring toss and other small competitions like pie eating contests. In the middle were various all day long activities like baseball games, teams for three legged races, teams for human wheelbarrow races. All day long, there was a live band and opportunities for dancing. It's refreshing to see the pure joy of everyone involved and a wonderful representation of how patients' time at the hospital weren't limited to the conventional image of incarceration. They got to be outside. They got to interact. There was joy in their lives and in their day and also captured in those videos. Well, and if people are interested, they can go to the County Grounds Parks to see some of the things that still remain today and bring some joy into people's lives as well. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing more. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Jonathan Peel is the unofficial historian of the Behavioral Health Division here in Milwaukee. To see photos of the artifacts we talked about earlier this year, head on over to wuwm.com. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn about a nurse who traveled by snowshoe to serve people in the North Woods before they had hospitals in the area. What was unique about her is that she would make those house calls by way of snowshoes if she could not drive, by way of paddling a canoe, riding with the snowplow driver, and in some instances, walking. 
But first, we'll learn about Black Cross nurses who helped bring better health care to the Black community. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. In the 1920s, amidst an international pandemic, rising rates of tuberculosis and smallpox, and racial disparities in health outcomes, the Black Cross nurses were founded. The Black Cross nurses trained Black people to become traveling nurses that met the needs of Black residents across the Western Hemisphere that were ignored by establishment public health institutions. Do for Self, the story of Milwaukee's Black Cross nurses, is an exhibit that opened last year at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society, and it chronicles the foundation of the Black Cross nurses here in Milwaukee. Lake Effect Sam Woods visited the exhibit to learn about the nurses from museum staff, as well as meet with today's health workers who see themselves in the exhibit. Vanessa Johnson was born two months early, at just over two pounds. Her mother was visiting Milwaukee during the 4th of July, when she went into labor, while everyone around her dismissed her concerns. And so, as you can suspect, she's coming here to just enjoy the holiday, and she went into labor. And no one believed her. They didn't think she was um, in labor. They told my father that he can go back to Indiana because my mother's just constipated. And so she was left to be alone in a hospital room laboring for hours at a time. And it wasn't until about eight hours or so later that the doctor finally came in the room to check on her and they could see me, I was coming out. And so it was, they were frantic and like, oh my goodness, and um, I was born. Today, Vanessa is a reproductive health lactation nurse, doula birth worker, and yoga instructor with an emphasis on prenatal and postpartum health. She says that she chose this work due to her birth story and how her mother was largely left alone and ignored while Vanessa was born. And so in, a, in an unfamiliar place, ill-prepared, not being listened to. And as a black woman, you know, birthing in the 70s, the idea of not being listened to, your voice not being heard, is still continuing to this day. And so I really felt like Somehow, some way, if I could provide a sense of peace in that moment for other families, then like job well done. But when I met Vanessa, she was fighting back tears of joy. As we were both learning about Milwaukee's long history of black health care workers volunteering to provide medical care for black residents and combat racial disparities in health outcomes over 100 years ago. We were at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society Museum's new exhibit, Do for Self, the story of Milwaukee's Black Cross nurses. The exhibit chronicles the foundation and story of the Milwaukee chapter of the Black Cross nurses, which was a group of black nurses dedicated to providing public health services to black people, with chapters in Milwaukee, as well as places as far away as Nova Scotia and Panama. But before we get into the Milwaukee chapter of the Black Cross nurses and Vanessa's connection to them, we need to establish some context, starting a little over a hundred years ago with Marcus Garvey and the UNIA. Fellow citizens of Africa, I greet you in the name of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. 
You may ask, what organization is that? It is for me to inform you that the Universal Negro Improvement Association is an organization that seeks to unite into one solid body the 400 million Negroes of the world. That's Marcus Garvey, speaking in 1921 about the goals of a new organization he had founded, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA. Starting in Garvey's home country of Jamaica, the long-term goals of the UNIA centered on political and economic autonomy for the black diaspora and encouraged a self-reliant black nationalism. This is where the exhibit's Do For Self title comes from. Now, at the same time that the UNIA was getting going and Marcus Garvey was recording this speech in the early 1920s, the need for adequate public health services was impossible to ignore. Every year in America, there are more than 100,000 new cases of tuberculosis. Of all infectious diseases, tuberculosis is still the greatest killer. Tuberculosis, measles, and smallpox remain prevalent, and the flu pandemic of 1918 caught the world by surprise in a manner similar to COVID-19, leading to thousands of people dying and the widespread use of masks and social distancing. Public health institutions like the American Red Cross were in place to aid in these emergencies. But black people did not receive the same level of care as white people from these types of establishment institutions. So, in 1920, Henrietta Vinton Davis, a UNIA member and follower of Marcus Garvey, founded the first chapter of the Black Cross Nurses in Philadelphia. Soon, Black Cross Nurse chapters popped up in conjunction with the UNIA all over North and Central America and the Caribbean. As Claiborne Benson, historian and executive director of the Wisconsin Black Historical Society, explains, the Black Cross nurses took Garvey's do-for-self idea and applied it to public health. They performed regular home and hospital visits, administered needed medicine, and cared for pregnant women and new mothers who were ignored by establishment health institutions. The Black Cross nurses served that purpose by going to their homes, by uh, treating them in their beds, and uh, and and caring for the issues that existed inside their house that makes their wellness becoming reality through clean house and through dishwashers and children. And, but they did even more than that. Many of them delivered babies and they, uh, they brought medicines from the drugstore to solve people's problems. They did all sorts of things because they actually cared about the people themselves. They saw it as uh, being part of the Marcus Garvey movement, number one, and number two, helping to solve the problems of our people, and that being health issues, tuberculosis, when others did not want to or were reluctant to uh, treat our people. Milwaukee would get its chapter of the Black Cross Nurses in 1921, when Hattie Fountain, a member of Milwaukee's UNIA chapter, started organizing volunteers to start a chapter here. Not only did Hattie start the chapter, but she kept detailed notes of the nurses' activities here in Milwaukee, which provide the basis for the exhibit on now at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society. In her diary, Hattie describes making house calls, seeing people in her home, and traveling to hospitals to visit people sick with various ailments. She also documents going to the train station to give smallpox inoculations, how the Black Cross nurses perform services similar to birth doulas, who would guide people through caring for themselves during pregnancy, as well as organize mutual aid for new mothers. The diary also described day-to-day -day life working for the UNIA, from cataloging membership certificates and meeting notes to stories of police raids in her home. 
As Wisconsin Black Historical Society Program Director Jamila Benson explains, this type of day-to-day -day documentation of Black Cross nurse activities in the 1920s is rare anywhere, despite the organization having chapters in dozens of countries. It's really exciting. There are historians who are going to find out that this is actually written and want to know more about it. I want to read what she wrote. Um, because in my, in my studies and in my research about Black Cross nurses, there's very little. Um, there's information on um, Lady Davis, who started the Black Cross nurses, but to talk about an individual nurse and her day-to-day -day activity is really rare. The Black Cross nurses continued this work in Milwaukee until the early 1950s, when Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy started fueling anti-communist suspicions nationwide. Here he is making a speech in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, using, quote, lumberjack tactics to hack away at alleged communist activity. As long as I am in the Senate, this task is not going to become a dainty task. If anyone wants to come in and remove them in some dainty fashion, they're welcome to it. But in the absence of that, if lumberjack tactics are the only kind of tactics that crowd understands and take my word for it, those are the kind of tactics we're going to use on them, as long as there is one there endangering the lives of 150 million American people. Now, McCarthy tended to focus his tirades in the early 1950s on supposed communist infiltration of U.S. government agencies and the military, not in the UNIA or Black Cross nurses specifically. However, over the years, his continued rhetoric fueled suspicion of these secret communist agents lurking everywhere. And Claiborne said that this caused the Black Cross nurses to fade away in Milwaukee because they feared becoming political prisoners. There were Black Cross nurses all the way through the 1950s. Um, and it's the McCarthy air that brings the fear in people and the, they stop attending meetings. Now, I can't tell you that they were Black Cross nurses uh, during that period of time, but they were members of the Marcus Garvey movement and they stayed true to Marcus Garvey. How could you not when you get slogans like, up you mighty race, be strong, take care of yourself, do for self. These are words of significance to African Americans and they respected and appreciated them, but they did not want to go to jail. Because the, uh, the FBI and other government agencies would press people with, what are you doing? What are you guys saying in this meeting? That kind of thing. And, that, and that's the one thing that stopped the movement. Now, that's in the early 1950s, early, early 1950s. But throughout the 30s and the 40s, uh, the Marcus Garvey movement is still alive. But if you ask Vanessa Johnson, who we met at the beginning of the segment, about the impact of the Black Cross nurses, she'd say their lessons and their experience live on. Beginning from her birth, where her mother did not receive adequate health care, to her work now as a nurse and doula, Johnson saw herself in the exhibit. She saw herself in both the obstacles that she and the Black Cross nurses faced, and in the shared resolution to improve Black health outcomes. Across the health sector, you know, the disparities are through the roof. And so, you know, it's important to, to know the history, to know about all of the, the pioneers who came before us so that we can continue to do this work because it is, it is, um, it, can, it can weigh heavy on your heart, your spirit, on your mental health. Um, but to know that we are, again, from the work that was done, that we have made strides, that we have 
uh, made advances, but to know that there's still mo- so much more to do. We have to we have to keep pushing and we have to keep fighting. And so that 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 really drives me where um, I think there's a quote that says, you know, like we are our ancestors wildest dreams right and so we can't give up we have to keep going do for self the story of milwaukee's black cross nurses is now on display at the wisconsin black historical society for lake effect i'm sam woods cause a sensation independent also liberal that was the Wisconsin Black Historical Society's Claiborne and Jamila Benson, as well as Vanessa Johnson, registered nurse and doula through her business, A Miracle Happened. Do for Self, the story of Milwaukee's Black Cross nurses, is an exhibit on display at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society. We'll take one more break, and then when we come back, we'll tell you about a Wisconsin doctor known as the Angel on Snowshoes. Keep listening to Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. Those majorities, they said that the king was listening. So nothing was missing, traffic could not pass. Police had a task, it was the best election. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. There's a small museum in Woodruff, Wisconsin that houses the story of a doctor known as the Angel on Snowshoes. In the 1930s and 40s, Dr. Kate Newcomb tended to patients in many communities in the North Woods before there was a hospital in that area. She would travel to her patients by any means necessary, including by canoe, skis, and snowshoes. She also advocated for a hospital to be built in the area, which led to a collection campaign of pennies to try and fund the hospital. Lori Berryman is the president of the board at the Dr. Kate Museum, and Marsh Dowd is a curator. They join Lake Effect Sam Woods to share Dr. Kate's story. Lori, Marsha, first off, can you tell me who is Dr. Kate and what does she mean to the area? Well, she served uh, quite a large area in square miles from the Woodruff area north to the UP border. All of these communities, Boulder Junction, Mantwish Waters, Presque Isle, Winchester, Lake Tomahawk, all of these communities, Lac de Flambeau, the uh, reservation at Lac de Flambeau, all of these communities housed her patients. She delivered over 3,000 babies uh, in in this area. And for most of that time of her practice, there was no hospital here. She had to travel either to Rhinelander, Tomahawk, or Ironwood, Michigan for hospital services. So she started practicing in 1931. We did not have a hospital here until 1954. So all of those visits primarily were home visits. And what was unique about her is that she would make those house calls by way of snowshoes if she could not drive by way of paddling a canoe, uh, riding with a snowplow driver, and in some instances, walking. So she serviced people all over the North Woods, and her nickname became the Angel on Snowshoes. People just came to know that whatever the situation, somehow Dr. Kate would get there. As you all mentioned, nothing could stop this woman. 
I also read a story about her rigging uh, skis to her car in order to um, get through the snow to make house calls. Um, really, nothing nothing stopped her, and she ended up delivering over 3,000 babies and serving a, a community of about 7,000 people just, again, by foot or by canoe or just any method, any method available. She grew up in a totally different environment than the Northwoods. Her father was the president of the Gillette Razor Company, and so he would not allow her to become a, a doctor. She really wanted to be a doctor from the time she was a young child, but he thought that was not ladylike. So instead, he said she could be a school teacher. So she taught sixth grade in Buffalo School Number 54 for a number of years, and then he needed her to come home and serve as his social hostess. And during one of the fancy dinner parties, she was serving a platter of squab, and the she dropped the platter and the squab fell into an ambassador's lap. And the next morning, her father invited her into a study and said she could go to medical school. <laughs> so at the age of 31, she graduated cum laude from the University of Buffalo. And that's when she took partnership in a practice in Detroit, Michigan and then moved to the Northwoods in 1922 after the uh, stillborn delivery of her first child, which really was the reason she just was so depressed and disheartened. She didn't want to practice medicine anymore. And, and thus when the Monaco doctor Torpy called her out, to need help is how she got back to her practice. In addition to Dr. Kate's uh, direct service of acting as a physician for over 7,000 patients in the area, delivering babies, just doing, doing it all, right? She was also involved in advocacy work around public health. Can you talk about the impact that that has had to this day? Dr. Kate found out that a lot of the issues of many of her patients of being sick was due to poor water or water contamination. And so she started campaigns of testing water, um, I'm assuming sending them to Madison to be tested and um, made sure that that was all pure and clean without runoff. Um, we also had a dairy in Woodruff and they were bottling milk and so she wanted to make sure that was all clean and bacteria free. Uh, in addition, she uh, started going to some of the camps that were going on in the area um, and made sure that the children were all healthy and had had their inoculations. And then if not, she would give them to them right there. She would come in and, and have the nurse day or the doctor day. And she, um, made sure all the kids were healthy and had been immunized uh, against the diseases that they needed to be immunized against. You know, in those days, polio was a, mm. a common disease. In fact, Dr. Kate's Fear. son had polio and mm. was spent time in an iron lung. 
the other thing she started here in the area, it, she taught the first natural childbirth classes. So she was a, a visionary uh, well ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so flash forward now a little bit to 1953. And a group of high school geometry students are looking to find a way to explore the concept of one million. Um, like just how big is one million? And what they end up doing is launching a campaign to collect one million pennies to fund the construction or the ongoing construction of a, of a hospital that Dr. Kate had, had started um, raising money for and, and constructing in Woodruff. And this campaign... Uh, exploded real quickly. Um, they met their goal of a million pennies in less than a year and ended up collecting even more once this story came out. But Marsha, can you tell the story about just how how we went from, you know, a high school geometry class looking to study the concept of a million to a brick and mortar hospital in the area Dr. Kate was working? So in 104 school days, 17 students at the Arborvita Woodruff High School collected pennies from then all 48 states and all continents except Antarctica. And people around the world read newspaper articles about these students in this small town trying to complete the building of a hospital in the form of collecting pennies. And it became quite a story around the country, uh, literally around the world. We have newspaper articles from South Africa and different countries where this was covered. So to celebrate their collection of the million plus pennies, Memorial Day weekend, 1953, there was a million penny parade in the town of Woodruff. 10,000 people came here to see the pennies which were displayed in the Arborvita Woodruff School gym. And the people who came to the parade then threw in $10,000 more pennies into the pile in the school gym. Thus, the people from the popular This Is Your Life television show contacted Mr. Otto Burek to get Dr. Kate on their television show. And he knew that she would never agree to do that. She did not seek out any of this publicity. So with the cooperation of the Los Angeles Medical Society and the Wisconsin Medical Society, they issued her an invitation to go to Los Angeles to speak at a medical convention. It was all a ruse. She had no idea why Ralph Edwards was picking her out of an audience, bringing her upstage for her to identify these various guests, which included her sister, her son, different people she had helped throughout her, her time in the Northwoods. And the end result of that show was he asked for anybody to send some pennies to Dr. Kate Woodruff, Wisconsin, to help finish the project. Well, they did send tons of mail here to the uh, conclusion of $105,000. After she was on This Is Your Life, 
Those 17 students were recognized in a Look Magazine article, which we have on display, and a congressional record where they were honored in May 1953. Dr. Kate was written up in Reader's Digest, U.S. News, Woman's Day, and several publications, banking magazines around the U.S., so it, it's quite a story. And just yesterday at our museum, we had visitors from Italy and Belgium. So this is a story that lives on and we're very proud to keep telling the story. And so today, 70 years on from the original Million Penny Parade, um, you all celebrated the 70th anniversary um, of the parade with the intention of raising money for uh, the Dr. Kate Museum. Um, and so this Dr. Kate Museum, also in Woodruff, Wisconsin, um, is dedicated to the preservation of her, her legacy and her memory. But can you talk a little bit more about, uh, for this fundraising effort, where this money will be going and how it will be used um, for this museum? Sure. We are looking to uh, create an addition to our museum it's, uh, to have more room to display um, many uh, previous displays and photos and all kinds of things that we have down in the basement where nobody can see them. <laughs> so uh, we need more room. We have not a bit of room left in this museum. So we're thinking of uh, adding out, going out towards the front of the museum to the sidewalk basically so that we can have more wall space and display space. And we also need handicap accessible bathrooms. So we, we want to put those in. So we've raised $33,000 so far in our uh, building fund. And many of those were pennies, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> we got a Very lot of pennies. Yes, yeah, yeah. preserving legacy yeah. in, all, in all the ways. Mm -hmm but we need more. I mean, you can't build a lot these days, especially on 33,000. So we're looking for uh, additional fundraising activities. We hope to have something in October. And um, we're also looking for any donors that are interested in helping us out. And thanks a million. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a million. I see I see what you did there, Marsha. And Marsha, Lori, I appreciate um, both your, your time here with me on Lake Effect as well as your dedication to preserving um, the legacy and history of such an incredible public servant. Thank you. Thanks. Lori Berryman is the president of the board at the Dr. Kate Museum, and Marsha Dowd is a curator at that same museum. They spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods last August. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. Jason Reeby is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Blair Navarra Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Chef wrote our theme music. If you've missed any of the Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.